Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Chris's and to Katie's, to Grace Presbyterian Church. My name is Marshall Brown. I am one of the pastors here. I'll be teaching on the passage that Jill just read for us. I do ask you to keep your Bible or your bulletin open. Uh, it's page 75 in the Pew Bible, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. But I do want to thank you for being here. Thank you. you there's a lot of things you could be doing. You could be doing back-to-school shopping. Uh, you could be at the pool or at the beach. You could be playing golf on this lovely day. Uh, but you have chosen to be here with God's people. And that's a good decision, worshiping the risen Christ. So welcome to our church, Grace Presbyterian. A church, our church is a community, and a community has to be gathered around something. Uh, in our case, we're gathered around someone. We believe that Jesus is God's Messiah who has entered the world to save it from its sins, to reveal the love of God, and to one day put the world to right. So we believe in Jesus. And so every week we gather to worship him and to rest in God's love for us that is made manifest to us in the person of Jesus. To rest in that love, to receive that love, and then to be reminded so that we can go out and reflect that love to a world that desperately needs that love. Whether those people that need that love are in, under our own roof and our household, people on our block, the city of Chicago, or around the world. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray particularly for our mission partners in Haiti. You may have heard after so much trouble for really the whole history of that island, uh, yesterday there was a 7.2 earthquake, and it was right around where some of the orphans that many in this church support in Cavayon. So I'll be praying for Haiti, for our minister partner there, ASMI, and then I'll pray for the service. But let me pray right now. God, as we sit here in the comfort of air conditioning and padded pews in the comfort of the North Shore, we're reminded that uh, Christians everywhere are not so comfortable this morning. We pray for Christians in Afghanistan facing the onslaught of the Taliban. And God, we pray for our partners and friends, people we know, names we know in Haiti this morning. Earthquake, political assassination a month ago, tropical storms coming their way in the next few days. God, have mercy on Haiti. We don't understand why this is happening, why you've allowed this to happen. We thank you, God, that to the best of our knowledge, the orphans at Cavayon are safe. We know the structures and even the church structures are damaged. And so, God, I pray that that would continue to be true, that there are no deaths, no fatalities from those we know and love. Be with Donnie St. Germain as he leads that ministry. Be with the orphan care workers. Be with the orphans. God, be with this island of Haiti. And I pray that, Lord, our care does not just stop at our prayers, but that we would find tangible ways to support our brothers and sisters there. God, as we turn now to the 7th century B.C., many years ago, we pray that you would be with us. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, I know this is going to disappoint some of you. But I need to tell you that I have a man crush on Matthew McConaughey. Chris, actually, earlier this year gave me his memoir, his memoir, which I have read. I loved actually listened to it. It's great. Uh, and I, on my sabbatical, we were away. I drove across Texas by myself. Shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. Uh, I actually drove by his childhood home in Uvalde, Texas, and had my picture taken in front of Matthew McConaughey's home. I know that's a little creepy. Matthew McConaughey is known for a lot of things, a couple phrases, but one phrase in particular, his charitable foundation is actually named after this, is JKL, just keep living. 
Elvis has TCB taking care of business. Matthew McConaughey, JKL. Just keep living. Now, that might sound wise, but I'm not sure it is. It actually may be the reason that my man crush soon passes. Because the problem, as I think about it, is not just keeping living. The problem is, how do I live, okay? To quote a fictional but perhaps wiser Texan, Josie Wales, dying's not hard, it's living. It's living that's hard. How then will you, how then do you live? It's a huge question, and Habakkuk has an answer for us today from God. And what I want to argue is one of, if not the most important verse in the Bible, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, last week, we began a month-long study of the prophecy, the book of Habakkuk, three chapters in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Last week, we covered Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk is organized as dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk and God, right? It's occurring in the late 7th century B.C. The people of Judah, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people, where Habakkuk lives and pastors, uh, they're on the verge of being conquered. They're on the verge of being sent into exile. The godly king Josiah, the godliest king that Judah ever knew, has been murdered or killed in battle, and his ne'er-do-well sons are on the throne. Violence, oppression, immorality are the order of the day in Judah. And so, as we saw last week in the first part of the chapter, Josiah complains to God, why do the wicked prosper? And how long is this going to go on? And God replies, he says, you're not really going to believe this, Habakkuk, but I'm sending the even more evil than your people and immoral Babylonians to conquer, to judge the nation of Judah. And then Habakkuk is just, he's gobsmacked. He can't believe it. And as we saw last week, it's the, it was the last verse we looked at this week. It's the first verse we looked at this week. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, he plants himself on the rampart. I don't understand you, God. Why are you doing this? I'm going to wait for your answer. He's placing himself on the wall and saying, I want to hear your answer. And so this week, we look at the beginning of God's response to Habakkuk. Now, the devastation that is prophesied and foretold in Habakkuk chapter 1, the devastation internally the immorality of the people of God, externally the threat of the coming Babylonians, okay? That devastation is actually the perfect foundation for the message of Habakkuk 2 that the righteous will live by faith. The devastation that is prophesied is the perfect foundation for the message the righteous will live by faith. And don't you know this? It's when the chips are down, when all the props are kicked away, when you are laid low, naked and needy before God. It is then that we are ready to hear and to know the message, by faith the righteous will live. Now, So this morning we're mainly going to look at verses 4 and 5, trusting ourselves and trusting God. But we're going to first start and cover verses 2 and 3, the certainty of the vision. So the outline in order is the certainty of the vision. Trusting self, finding emptiness, trusting God, finding life. But first, verses 2 and 3, quickly, the certainty of the vision. Now again, verse 2, God is replying to Habakkuk, and he's saying, write down what I show you. Habakkuk, I'm giving you this vision, I want you to write it down. And I want you to write it on tablets, which is to say, don't write it on parchment, write it on something permanent, a tablet. And then he says, 
write in such a way that someone who is running by could read it. They would notice it because the lettering is so big. They would easily be read. Think Hollywood sign, okay? Enormous, permanent letters cannot miss what is being written. And so what is the message that Habakkuk writes down? Verse 3, God is saying, what I'm showing you, Habakkuk, will happen. And we said last week that what he is showing him, that judgment is sure and coming from the Babylonians. Judgment is coming. And out of that judgment, salvation will come. And so God says, that's what's going to happen. Judgment and out of that salvation, wait for it. It's going to come at the right time. And he's saying to him, Habakkuk, you need to live. You and your people need to live knowing that that is coming. And you know this, right? How you live today... How you live today is impacted by how you think what you believe about tomorrow in the future. Students, if you think that going to college is important for your future, you will study for the tests this fall. Adults, if you think that having a few dollars in your future retirement, you will save and invest today, right? And God is saying, if you don't believe me, trust yourself and do what you want. But if you believe me, and if you believe what I'm saying, God says, both about the coming judgment and the coming salvation, then trust me. Live by faith. So let's look then at those two options, trusting ourselves and trusting God. So second, I want to see trusting ourselves and finding emptiness. Now, by my accent and by my opening illustration, you may have figured out I am from Texas. And when I was an obnoxious teenager, I had a shirt that said there are two kinds of people in the world, Texans and those who wish they were. Now, don't worry, I'm not that guy. I don't believe that. But, but, I do believe there are two kinds of people in the world. People who are more and more trusting themselves and people who are more and more trusting God. There's two kinds of people in the world. People who are more and more trusting God and people who are more and more trusting themselves. The contrast, look with me, is laid out in verse 4. The contrast is laid out. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. Now on the one hand, and we'll look at this in a moment, is the person who trusts God, who has faith in God. But on the other hand, is the one whose soul is puffed up. Okay, now the immediate context is the Babylonians, okay, these ravenous conquerors. I mean, I hate, this, I hate that this illustration is poignant, but the Babylonians were like the Taliban today. They came in so quickly, so ravenously, and just ransacked the country, okay? That is the immediate context. But even the way that this is written shows that this is a message not just for the Babylonians and about them, but this is a message for all people who put their fundamental trust in themselves. This is a message for all people who put their fundamental trust in themselves. The way that the ESV, our translation in front of us, says that it's puffed up. Other translations are helpful. The New American Standard says for those who are proud. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. Those who are bloated by self-importance, full of themselves, but self-empty. You see, the opposite of faith is not atheism, although that's a form of it. The opposite of faith is trusting yourself. The opposite of faith is trusting yourself. 
Stay with me. Verse 5 continues the description of the person who trusts themselves. Verse 5 is a description of the person who trusts themselves. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So verse 5 is a description of the person who trusts themselves. And there's two images. Wine and wealth, okay? Wine and the lack of rest, the lack of inner peace. And wealth, which it says never satisfies, is never enough. Stay with me, okay? As human beings, all every person in this room, every person you've ever met, we are meaning makers, which means we have to have meaning to live. There has to be a why for us. Also, as human beings, every person you've ever met, every person in this room, we all, all of us, want to be happy. You've never met somebody that does not want to be happy, does not want to be satisfied. And what Habakkuk is saying is if you trust yourself, you have to find strategies. You have to find strategies for meaning, why, and satisfaction, happiness. You have to find strategies. And Habakkuk is saying that two common strategies for minding meaning and satisfaction are wine and pleasure and greed, an inordinate longing for money. Now, this cuts a little close to the bone on the North Shore, right? Let's look at them in turn. First, wine. And let me just say this. Wine is a good gift from God, meant to be enjoyed. I don't need to say a whole lot about this at Grace Presbyterian. Before COVID, we served, and in the future, we'll serve wine for the Lord's Supper. At Rock the Block, we will serve good and free beer, Okay. But interestingly, Habakkuk brilliantly says wine is like a traitor. Because wine promises what? Wine promises to make you feel alive. It promises to make you feel more yourself. It promises to make you free. But it can be a traitor. Because not only does it not deliver life, wine can steal life. You can use alcohol to numb the pain. You might be the life of the party when everyone's around, but you're emotionally absent and not present with those closest to you. The most sad and poignant lines I've read in the last couple of years, they're so evocative. And if you're a Cubs fan, you're going to love this. If you're a White Sox fan, you're going to hate this. But Hawk Harrelson, the voice of the White Sox for 30 plus years, someone asked him what he was doing with his retirement. And he said, and this is crass, he said, I spend my days turning vodka into urine. Now, that's crass, but even more cra than crass, it is sad. But it's not just that. You might be overserved, and you do something you regret. You bring shame upon yourself, and you steal life from yourself. Or you say something to hurt someone else when you've been overserved, and you take life from them. Or perhaps, worst of all, you get behind the wheel, and you actually hurt someone, taking a literal life. Wine, alcohol, chewables... Even food itself, pleasure, can be a traitor, promising life, but delivering emptiness. Middle of verse 5, greed. Greed, inordinate desire for wealth. And he says, never has enough. Greed never has enough, Habakkuk says there in verse 5. Now remember the historical context here is the Babylonians, okay? This ravenous, conquering people. Their desire was to conquer more land. They were insatiable. More power, more land, more wealth. They have just conquered Assyria. They're about to conquer Egypt and the nation of Judah. 
And the classic mistake of empire was wanting more and more and more. Getting too much, being spread thin, and then being conquered. That's what happened to the Assyrians and they were conquered by the Babylonians. It's what will happen 70 years after this story to the Babylonians when they are conquered by the Persians. The Persians will be conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks will be conquered by the Romans. The Romans by the Visigoths. And on down through history it goes, right? But again, Habakkuk under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does something brilliant. He draws a line between the national greed of conquering Babylonians, of empires, and the greed that can make its way into any and every human heart. He draws this line between the national greed of empires and the greed that can make its way into any human heart. Now, I'm taking this from several sources, so what I'm about to say might not actually be mathematically true, although I think it is. Uh, I'm almost certain that the richest American of all time was John D. Rockefeller. And I'm almost certain that if you took his wealth when he died and took it into present dollars, he would be worth more than Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett combined. I'm almost certain of this. And, and which would mean that he would have 50%, that one person, if he lived today with that wealth, would have 50% of all the wealth in America. One person, 330 million people, one guy has 50% of the wealth. And someone one time asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? One dollar more, he said. You see, there's this thing that greed, there is never enough. Jonathan Haidt, sociologist, calls this the hedonic treadmill. Big word, I'll explain it. Hedonic treadmill. Hedonism is the desire for more comforts, more stuff, more pleasure, more and you know what a treadmill is, right? Varying speeds. And the idea is the more you get, the more you need. This is what Jonathan Haidt says. Wealth itself still has only a small direct effect on happiness because it so effectively speeds up the hedonic treadmill. You get a little bit more, you need more. You get a little bit, you need more, right? One more dollar. What is it for you? Is it one more dollar? Is it one more promotion? One more outfit? One more pair of shoes? One more like on Instagram? One more like on TikTok? One more luxury experience? Maybe it's a spa or a top 100 golf course. One more strategy to fix your children? One more strategy to fix your family? One more diet to fix yourself. You see, when we trust ourselves and we look to these things for meaning and satisfaction, what do we find? There's no there there. There's no there there. Or to quote Habakkuk, like death, it's never enough. You're never satisfied. The more you get, the faster the treadmill turns and the more you need. But... There is the offer, here in verse 4, of looking to the infinite, eternal, unchanging God who offers both meaning and happiness satisfaction. So let's turn on a happy note to trusting ourselves, trust, excuse me, trusting God, Freudian slip, trusting God and finding life. Trusting God and finding life. Or as Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, there's an argument, I've already alluded to it, that this is the most important verse in all of the Bible. Now, 
Don't wonder about my doctrine of the Bible. I believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God and all of Scripture is important. But I think that this verse frames and encompasses so much of what the Bible's message is. Consider, this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is quoted three times in the New Testament at critical junctures. First, Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, he is articulating, it's the earliest articulation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That doctrine, let me tell you how important that doctrine is, it's in the background of every single sermon I preach. The doctrine of justification by faith, it's in the back, every sermon. And how does, he, how does he build his argument for that doctrine? He quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the justice, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in the book of Romans, Verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans is universally agreed to be the most comprehensive statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Palmer Robertson points out, a New Testament scholar, that Paul uses this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, as a way to both introduce the whole book of Romans as well as a way to summarize the theme of it. It structures the whole letter. And then there's the third occurrence of Habakkuk 2.4 in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, a different author, writing to a group of persecuted Christians who are on the verge of giving up and returning to Judaism. The the message of uh, Habakkuk is persevere. And the most famous chapter, the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews is the Hall of Faith, right? Chapter 11 of Hebrews. By faith Noah, by faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith all these, these great heroes of the faith. And you guess what verse introduces chapter 11? You guessed it, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Now in different contexts, making complementary points, both authors are using Habakkuk to frame the story. Okay, roughly Paul is saying, this is for the theologians, Paul is roughly saying faith is how you get right with God. The author to the Hebrews is saying faith is how to live. So let's look back at Habakkuk. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message. He says this about chapter chapter 2, verse 4. But the person in right standing before God, through loyal and steady believing, is fully alive. Really alive. I love the way he emphasized it. Through loyal and steady believing is fully alive. Really alive. You see, Habakkuk 2, 4 is important because trusting God is the passport to life. And by life, I mean all of life. I mean eternal life. I mean forgiveness of sins. I mean meaning. I mean satisfaction. I mean life. I mean life. Faith is the passage, the passport to life. Now that leaves a few questions though. (laughs) Namely, maybe you're asking, I know I'm thinking, what is faith? Maybe the easiest way to get the answer of what is faith is by answering what faith is not. Here's one thing. Faith is not a work, okay? You're not straining to believe more, right? Or you're not trying to believe enough. Faith is more like receiving. You see, the key thing about faith is not faith in itself. The key thing is what is faith in? What are you placing your faith in? I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. Imagine that two people are trying to get on the roof of a house. Okay, two people trying to get on the roof of a house, and they need a ladder. One person is a five-year-old girl. Another person, imagine a bodybuilder, the strongest man that you can imagine. Two people, okay? The bodybuilder has a rickety, rotten, 
infested ladder, an old ladder that is going to break. That's how he's going to get on the roof. The five-year-old girl, she has an OSHA standard Home Depot brand new steel ladder, okay? Five-year-old girl, steel ladder. Rich, uh, big, strong guy, wood ladder that's broken and rotten. Who's getting on the roof? The five-year-old girl. You see, the key to faith is not the strength of the person. The key to faith is the strength of what or whom they trust. That's the key to faith. You see, friends, our faith is not strong. There's no such thing as a strong Christian. There's only a strong God. The God in whom we place our faith is strong. And to grow in your faith, you've got to learn to receive from him. So faith is not a work. But what then is faith? Well, I don't think this definition of John Calvin has ever been surpassed. John Calvin, 500 years ago, said this. Faith is the sure and firm knowledge of the divine favor toward us. I love that. It's intellectual and it's emotional. The divine favor toward us. Let me put that in 21st century Marshall Brown language. That means faith is living as if God loves you. Faith is living as if God likes you. As if he loves you and likes you so much that he would give his only son. And some of you are like, okay, okay, preacher man. You have some quotes and some illustrations, but how do I do that? How do I live by faith? How do I live like that? Well, let's start by using Habakkuk's categories, wine and wealth. Wine, food, pleasure. Be honest with yourself. Are you using those things in grateful response to the God who gives you and wants to give you joy? Or are you using those things to find temporary relief from the pain of your life? I'll confess to you that particularly for me, as my wife would gladly attest, the struggle is food. And I have found that both with alcohol and food that I occasionally need to fast to stop for a while to remind myself, not to remind myself of this only, that joy and life are only found in God. That the relief from the pain that I want is only found ultimately in God. And that whether it's food or a drink at the end of the day, that those things will not cure the pain within me. Wealth. Now, a lot could be said about wealth, but I'm just going to tell a little bit of an oblique story about a more worthy man crush of mine, uh, a man uh, who is a public follower of Jesus, NBA star Steph Curry. Now, Curry, Steph Curry has changed the game of basketball. He's a multiple MVP. He has won multiple championships. Uh, he is also a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And for years, Steph Curry played on what is called his rookie contract, which means he, made, he makes a lot of money. Let's just be real clear. Uh, but he played on his rookie contract. He was the best player in the league or one of the top players in the league but he was not even the highest played player on his team, okay? Now, let me just be clear. When, it, when that rookie contract expired, he did sign a max contract, so don't worry about Steph Curry. He's now one of the highest paid players in the league. But for years, he was not one of the highest paid players. He changed the league, MVP. And someone one time asked him, and the thing about being in the pro sports is you know what everybody on the team makes. That's weird, right? You're in the room of 12 locker room, and you know what everybody on the team makes. And you're, you're the best player, and you're not making the most money. And someone wanted to ask him, Steph, does it bother you that players who are lesser than you are making more money than you? Steph Curry, who was raised as a Christian by his Christian dad, Dale Curry, 
said to the reporter, he said, I think of what my dad told me years ago. And Dale Curry told Steph Curry, don't waste your time counting another man's money. Don't waste your time counting another man's money. The point is, God has given you what he's given you, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little. Don't waste your time counting someone else's money. It's God's money, and he's given it to us. There's other ways to live like this. One of the things we try to do in our household is to quote to one another out loud in the morning, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is, my wife said it to me on the way out the door. This is the day of the Lord. This, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. No matter what comes my way today, hardship, suffering, joy, triumph, this is the day. God is bringing it my way because he loves me. So what is your day going to be? Is it the chaos of children yelling and screaming and going nuts? Is it chronic pain? A rebellious child? Is it loneliness? Is it great success? Is it joy? Maybe you're single and you want to be married. Maybe you're married. <laughs> Y'all laugh way too easy. First service, they didn't laugh. That wasn't meant to be funny. You're not supposed to laugh especially. But whatever you face today, this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in whatever you face. God has given it to you. God has given it to you so that you might trust him. But the number one way to learn, the number one way to learn to live by faith is to look to Jesus. And I want you to think about Jesus, and I want to thank you to think about Habakkuk 2.4. Jesus Christ and the righteous shall live by faith. He is the fulfillment of that verse. He, first of all, is the righteous one. He is holy. He was tempted in all the ways that you and I are tempted, and he never sinned. He was holy. He was and is the righteous one, right? And he also lived by faith in the darkest hour of his life. He said, not my will. Father, take this away from me. I don't want to have to die. But not my will, but your will. The ultimate act of faith, the ultimate act of trust. The righteous by faith. And then he lived. <laughs> He loved other people. He gave of himself. He came to this world. He was righteous by faith. He lived by loving and giving himself for us. He is our older brother. We look to him, we find life, and we learn what it means to look like and be empowered that the righteous will live by faith. And so my charge to you today is to lean into that, to know that the righteous will live by faith, looking to our older brother, Jesus, who both provides it and is our example unto it. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you that you have given us your son, the righteous one, who by faith lived. He lived a full life. And we pray that as we look to him as our example, but more importantly as the one who by your spirit empowers us to live day by day, increasingly more and more by faith. In Jesus' name, in his sake we pray. Amen.